Our text for this morning is Psalm 7. The heading of this psalm tells us that David sang it to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. The problem we have with that heading is that Cush is not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. All of the information that we have about him is found here in this psalm. And there are basically two things that the psalm tells us about him. First, he was a Benjamite, which probably means that he was a supporter of the family of Saul and one of those who joined Saul then in persecuting David. The other thing we're told about him is that he spoke against David and specifically that he brought against David a false accusation. David talks about that false accusation in verses 3 and 4. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. This psalm then is David's response to that false accusation of Cush. We consider the psalm under the theme Praying for justice against a false accuser. Praying for justice against a false accuser. First, David's prayer. That's in verses 1 to 9. And then David's confidence. That's in verses 10 to 17. First, then, David's prayer. In verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, David specifically asks God to save and deliver him. He commits his way to the Lord, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. And he acknowledges that he has no one else to help him. That's in the last line of verse 2, while there is none to deliver. And he then asks the Lord to save and deliver him. Verses Verse 1, the last part, and verse 2. Now there are a couple of things that we want to notice about that prayer. First of all, in verse 1, when he says, Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, it's obvious that David has numerous enemies. And that this is not just, therefore, a prayer against Cush, but it's also a prayer against all those other enemies at this time. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. But in the second verse, and our translation does not convey this, but the King James would, for example, David speaks of a specific enemy. The translation says, lest they tear me like a lion, but the Hebrew is, lest he tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So what David is doing is talking in that first verse about the numerous enemies who persecute him, and then from among those numerous enemies, in verse 2, he singles out one single enemy, who is undoubtedly Cush, and says, deliver me not only from them, but deliver me also from him. It seems, therefore, that Cush had taken advantage of David's vulnerable circumstances. David was being persecuted by many enemies. David had no one to help him. 
And Cush looked at that situation and he said to himself, this is a good opportunity for me to make a specific attack on David and it is unlikely that he will be able to defend himself from that attack or save himself from it. The thrust then of those two words deliver, which you find at the end of verse 1 and at the end of verse 2, is this, save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me from them, lest he tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is no one to deliver me from him. The point is then that David understands what Cush is doing. Cush is taking advantage of the general persecution of David to make a specific attack. And David says to God, save me from all those who persecute me so that I may at the same time be delivered from Cush, who desires my destruction. In verses 3 to 5, then, David makes a very strong assertion of his own innocence of that charge that Cush brought against him. He begins these verses with a threefold conditional statement. If I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. Now, what's very striking about those three lines there in verses 3 and 4, that David begins in a very general way. If I have done this, he said, without telling us what it is that he is supposed to have done. We know nothing at this point about what he is supposed to have done. In the second line, he comes a little closer to naming it specifically, if there is iniquity or injustice in my hands. So David says, this is then a matter of iniquity or injustice. And then finally, in the third line, he tells us specifically what it is that he is concerned about. If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. So this was Cush's specific accusation against David that David had repaid evil to one at peace with him. It would have been bad enough, of course, if David had repaid evil to an enemy, one who had done evil to him. But Cush's accusation was that David had made a wholly unprovoked and unjustified attack on someone who was at peace with him. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the thing of which Cush accused David is exactly what Cush was doing to David. He accused David of repaying evil to one at peace with him. He was repaying evil to David who wanted nothing more than to be at peace with him and the whole house of Saul. But why does David approach that specific accusation of Cush so slowly? Why does he have to go through three lines in order to get to the specifics of Cush's attack? It's not because he's afraid of naming the sin of which Cush has accused him. 
It's rather because by doing it that way, he strengthens his assertion of innocence. The real effect of those conditional clauses is this, O Lord my God, if I have done this, but I have not, if there is iniquity in my hands, but there is not, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, but I did not. Three times then David asserts his innocence by those conditional clauses. Making very clear to all who will hear him that he is not guilty. Now the last part of verse 4 Again, we have a slight problem with the translation, though commentators actually disagree about this. The New King James has, or have plundered my enemy without cause, making it an extension of the first part of verse 4. But if you look at the King James Version, the King James Version has, in parentheses, Yea, I have delivered him who without cause was my enemy. And I think that's the main idea of that last line. In other words, David's not extending his explanation of Cush's accusation, but he's asserting in that line that not only has he not done what Cush says he has done, he has, in fact, done the opposite. Cush says, you repaid evil to one who was at peace with you. David says, indeed I have not. I delivered one who was my enemy without cause. Someone made an unjustified and unprovoked attack on me. And instead of responding with vengeance and revenge towards him, I delivered him. It may well be that David has in mind here King Saul himself, whose life David had spared twice during Saul's persecutions of him. So again, David is asserting his innocence. In verse 5, then, David says that he is willing to accept punishment, extreme punishment, if Cush's accusation is true. If I have done this, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Notice the progression there. Let the enemy pursue me, let him overtake me, and when he has overtaken me, let him trample my life to the earth. Let him destroy me, let him take my life, in other words. That's part of what David is willing to accept if he has done what Cush has accused him of doing. But he adds, and lay my honor in the dust. He is willing not only then to accept death as a just punishment of the sin, if he has committed it, but he is also willing that his reputation be ruined and that all the glory he has at this present moment in his life be taken entirely from him. That glory would include such things as the wealth that he has accumulated up to this point. It would include the glory of his family and friends and servants. And it would even include, we should not ignore that fact, it would even include God's anointing of him to be king of Israel. Let him lay my glory or my honor in the dust. 
All this David is willing to accept if Cush has spoken truth about him. But he has not. David brings this matter to God and he says to God, O Lord my God, if I have done this, let all these things happen to me. In other words, this punishment should come to him from the hands of God himself. In verses 6 to 9, then, David asks God for judgment in this matter. And he draws for us a very vivid picture by implication. David knows that God has commanded judgment, has ordained judgment. He talks about that in verse 7, 6, excuse me. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. He knows that God is a judge and that God has ordained judgment. That is, God is not just a judge in the abstract, but God is a judge who's, who judges and who has ordained or commanded judgment. Judgment will come. Judgment will be executed at some point. In the second place, David knows that God's place of judgment is in Zion. That's implied in the last part of verse 7 where he says, For their sakes, therefore, return on high, or return to the heights. David is talking there about the heights of Zion. That is the place where God's throne is. That is the place from which he judges. And those who want judgment must seek him in Zion. So David goes to Zion to seek judgment. And when he comes to the heights of Zion before the throne of God, he finds the throne unoccupied. The Lord is gone. The Lord is not there. The Lord is not ready for judgment. In fact, the Lord is away from his throne and is either seated or sleeping somewhere else. He's not there on the heights of Zion. All this is implied in the words which David uses in this prayer here. He begins, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. That word arise means that the Lord is sitting or sleeping and must stand up. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Again, the Lord is either seated or lying down. He must lift himself up. And again in the next line, rise up for me, or, or better even, awake for me to the judgment you have commanded. The Lord is sleeping. David calls upon him to wake. And finally, at the end of verse 7, return to the heights. Return to the heights. The Lord is not there on the heights. David calls upon him to return. Now David does not mean here, of course, to accuse God of dereliction of duty. But what David is doing is making clear the urgency of his request against Cush. And he is emphasizing what it is that it seems like to him. 
His enemies are persecuting him. Cush is making this false accusation against him. And God has not acted on his behalf. It seems to him that God is absent from his throne. That God is not bringing that judgment which David expects. That judgment which the Lord himself has commanded. So he calls on God to rise up, to wake from his sleep, and to return to the heights. Now David seeks here, in these verses, also a universal judgment. That's another interesting aspect of this prayer. You find that in verse 7 first. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. And then again, verse 8, the Lord shall judge the peoples. Those words are synonyms for the word nations in the psalm. So David asks God to return to the heights, to be seated on his throne of judgment, to prepare himself for judgment, to bring around him also the peoples, not just David, not just David and Cush, or David and Cush with the rest of his enemies, but the peoples in general. This is a matter of universal judgment as far as David is concerned. Why? Why in this private matter, this matter between David and Cush, or at most this matter between David and his enemies among the people of Israel, does David talk about a universal judgment? The answer to that, people of God, is that that private judgment is part and parcel of the universal judgment of God. And I mean by that not just that that is part and parcel of the judgment on the last day, but it is part and parcel of God's ongoing work of judgment in the history of the world. God began his work of judgment immediately after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. When he judged Adam and Eve and judged the serpent. He continued that work of judgment all through the Old Testament, judging not only his people Israel, but judging also the nations around them. His judgments were, at that time, in all the earth. And his judgments continue to this day, this universal judgment. God is not just judge when Christ comes again at the end of time. God is continually judged. He's always judging. He's judging us now, here in this place. He's judging the nations, including our own nation. His judgment work is an ongoing work. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ was himself caught up in that ongoing work of judgment, as we read in John 18 and 19. Pilate said to him, don't you know that I have power to crucify you or to release you? Jesus says to him, you would have no power at all against me except it were given you from above. In other words, Christ sees Pontius Pilate and therefore Herod and the leaders of the Jews as representatives of God bringing the judgment of God. 
And it is in this way that our Lord made this prayer his own. The Jews especially, of course, brought against him many false accusations at that time. And Christ brought his case before God, before the judges whom God had appointed, the leaders of the Jews and Pontius Pilate and Herod, and cried for vindication before them. And God did not vindicate him. But he was judged, and he was judged as an innocent man, found guilty, but found guilty because of our sins upon him. David then prays for this private judgment between himself and Cush because it is a part of that whole picture of God's judgment. You can't separate it out. But David is nevertheless also concerned about himself. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. The Lord is to oppose his anger to the rage of David's enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. And then finally at the end of verse 8. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Again, David asserts his innocence. He says to the Lord, not only judge me, but judge me according to that righteousness and that integrity which is in me. And David does not mean, of course, that he is wholly righteous or wholly a man of integrity. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could claim that and did claim that as he stood before the leaders of the Jews and Pontius Pilate and Herod. But what David means here is that he is innocent of the specific charge which Cush has brought against him, that he repaid evil to one who was at peace with him. He is asking for God's judgment in that incident, in that matter, of that false accusation, and he is saying, judge me according to my righteousness and my integrity in me in that matter. This is a psalm that's very different than from Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is a psalm in which David implicitly acknowledges his guilt and accepts the judgment and chastening of the Lord, accepts a judgment against him and asks for relief from that judgment. In this psalm, David asserts his innocence in a specific matter and asks God not only to judge him but to vindicate him. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. He even prays for the results of the judgment in verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. And that word wicked in verse 9 is plural. Let the wickedness of wicked men come to an end, but the word just is singular. But establish the righteous man. David prays for a specific outcome of the Lord's judgment. 
And he prays for that specific outcome on the basis of God's own justice. The righteous God tests the hearts and minds, or better, the righteous God tests the hearts and kidneys. The Lord sees into the hearts of men. He sees what is in their thoughts. He sees their desires. He knows their passions. He knows all of that those things that are in their consciences. There's nothing that's hidden from him. He knows the hearts and kidneys of men. And he is righteous. He judges perfectly righteously. And David asks for vindication then from that false accusation on the basis of the righteousness of God. He appeals to God's righteousness as the way by which he will be vindicated of that false accusation. Now there are a number of lessons, people of God, that we can learn from those first nine verses of the psalm. First of all, in any of the troubles that we experience in this life, we are never wholly alone. There may be no other men to help us, as there were none to help David. There is none, he said, to deliver. But the Lord is our refuge. He does not leave us alone. The second lesson we can learn from those verses is love your enemies. Remember what David said, Indeed, I have delivered him who was without cause my enemy. Love your enemies. Do good to them who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And finally, if you have been wrong, you may take your case to God and you may plead for vindication. We don't think about that very much, I think. We don't think about the fact that there are instances in our lives when we are wronged and when we are righteous in those cases. And that if we are righteous, we may take our case to God and ask for vindication. We may indeed do that. Now, if we have sinned, of course, we must be prepared to accept the judgment against us and to accept the chastening hand of the Lord to oppress us. But if we are innocent, we may go to God and appeal to him on the basis of his own righteousness to vindicate. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. In verses 10 to 17, then, David expresses his confidence in the Lord. In these verses, David is not praying. In verses 1 to 9, he is. All of it is addressed to God. But in verses 10 and following, he's no longer praying. Now he is not addressing God directly, but he is talking about God. And he is expressing particularly his confidence in the Lord. 
He begins with a very simple statement, my defense is of God, or my shield is of God. God is the one who will defend him from his enemies. God is also the one who will be a shield to him against the fiery darts of Cush's malicious tongue. David is confident of that. Now, David strengthens his confidence in that statement, that belief, by referring in the rest of verse 10 and verses 11 to 16 to various principles according to which God always acts. We need to note about those things that David says of God in those verses that he's not talking about God's behavior towards him specifically at this time. But he's talking about the way that God always acts. And it is in looking to that consistent behavior of God in all that he does that David is able to strengthen his confidence in the Lord for the present. There are five different principles that we may see David expressing here. Principles according to which God always acts. First, he saves the upright in heart. He saves the upright, not the wicked. He saves not those who are upright in their external behavior, but full of corruption and wickedness within, but he saves those who are upright in heart. He is able to discern also the heart and judge according to what is there. That's the first principle. And David shores up his confidence in the Lord by appealing to that. He says, in this specific instance, in this matter of the accusation of Cush, I am upright in heart. I am righteous. And God will save me. Because that's the way he works. That's what he does. The second principle is God is a just judge. He cannot be led away from justice. He cannot be blinded in his judgment. He cannot be bribed to pervert judgment. Nothing can be hidden from him. Everything that is in the hearts and behavior of men is fully known to him, and he judges righteously. Because of his omniscience, He knows everything there is to know about the case before him. Every last detail, something impossible, of course, to a judge here on earth. He knows absolutely everything, and he is able to judge perfectly righteously. He is a righteous judge. Again, David appeals to this. God is a righteous judge. Therefore, when I come before him with my righteous cause... He will judge in my favor. The third principle is God is angry with the wicked every day. What David means by this is that God's behavior towards the wicked is consistent. 
He's not angry with them one day and indifferent to them the next day. He's not angry with them one day and the next day slapping them on the back as if they're jolly good fellows. They are always under his anger. He is angry with them every day. His behavior, his attitude, we should say really, his attitude towards them does not change. And though David may not see the manifestations of that anger in God's dealings with Cush and with himself in the present circumstances at the moment, nevertheless, David is convinced that God is indeed angry with Cush and will continue to be angry with him. The fourth principle that David states here is found in verses 12 and 13. And David uses here the metaphor of a soldier who is preparing himself for imminent battle. He sharpens his sword and he prepares his bow. In fact, the battle is so eminent that the soldier has taken his bow, bent it, notched an arrow to the string, and turned that arrow towards the enemy. Verse 13, the last part, he makes his arrows into fiery shafts, or perhaps better, he turns his arrows against the persecutors. So the soldier is ready for battle. He has prepared for himself the instruments of death. Now what David means by that is that God stands ready at every moment to bring justice and judgment upon the wicked. He is always ready. Exactly the opposite of how David felt in the earlier part of the psalm. Remember when he called upon the Lord to awake? There is no need to call upon him to awake. His sword is sharp. His bow is ready. His arrow is on the string and aimed towards the enemy. The, the Lord stands ready at any moment to bring justice upon the wicked. If he does not turn back, that's the first part of the verse. If he does not turn back, that is, if the wicked does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Judgment is prepared for the ungodly. So again, David is strengthening his confidence in the Lord by recognizing the fact that the Lord is ready to bring judgment when the time has come, when the time is right. Jehovah will release his arrows, will bring into play his instruments of death. The fifth principle is expressed in verses 14 to 16. And this principle is that the Lord brings back on the wicked they trouble, the trouble they prepare for others. Again, David uses metaphors here. The first metaphor is the metaphor of a pregnant woman. And there are three different phases to pregnancy. There is the conception, there is the travailing or laboring, and there is finally the giving birth, the bringing forth. David refers to them all here, but not in chronological order. 
he begins with the travail or labor. We should read there in the first line of verse 14, Behold, the wicked labors with iniquity, or travails with iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. So David looks at this matter of wickedness, and he says, this is not a matter of wickedness done on the spur of the moment, but this is a matter of wickedness carefully prepared. He has conceived in his mind trouble or mischief. He has labored with it to shape it according to his purposes, to make it into an act of iniquity. And finally, he has given birth to falsehood. So all of it emphasizes the wicked man's careful preparation of his wickedness. The same thing is true of the next metaphor, the metaphor of a man who digs a pit to trap an animal. Again, the emphasis is on the careful preparation. He made a pit and dug it out. He didn't just dig a casual hole in the ground and hope that at some time in the future somebody or something would fall there. But he made a pit and scooped it out very carefully, preparing it according to his ideas of what would make the best sort of trap to ensnare his prey. And when it's all done, when he has gone through all this trouble, when he has conceived the trouble, shaped it according to his own ideas and wisdom, when he has brought it forth and laid it in the path of David, he falls into it himself. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch that he made. That is the Lord's justice. His trouble returns on his own head. His violence comes down on his own crown. The Lord makes the trouble that the wicked prepare for others rebound on themselves. We call it poetic justice. The scriptures call it the righteousness of God. Cush has prepared evil for David. God will make sure that that evil rebounds on Cush's own head. So what is it then that David is looking to in these things? As he looks at Jehovah's behavior, and especially at Jehovah's behavior towards the wicked, and as he sees how in this behavior of the Lord toward the wicked, the Lord is consistent. He saves the upright. He's a just judge. He's angry with the wicked every day. He stands prepared to execute judgment against the wicked. He makes the trouble of the wicked turn back on themselves. What is it that David is thinking about and appealing to and strengthening his confidence in? It is, is it not, the righteousness of God. David is so certain of his own innocence in this matter of Cush that he strengthens his confidence in God by appealing not to his mercy, but to his righteousness. Bring righteousness is the heart of David's plea. And so then he concludes the psalm by saying, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. Again, it's not his mercy. 
Though undoubtedly the mercy of God is active with regard to David also in this matter, it's not particularly his mercy in this matter, though, that David finds as the foundation for his confidence. It is the righteousness of God, and he praises God accordingly. He sings praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That one who is exalted above the nations, whose throne is in Zion, who sits as judge, around whom all the people will be gathered together. Before him, David brings his case against Cush. And before him, David sings his praise. The lesson, people of God, is very simple, isn't it? When wronged, we should appeal to the righteousness of God. Judge me, O Lord, in your righteousness, according to the righteousness and integrity that is in me. He is a God who saves the upright in heart. And we should praise him accordingly. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen.